Well, hey, friend, welcome to Job with Julie. This is Julie Slattery. This podcast is listener supported and it's an outreach of authentic intimacy, which is a, a ministry that's dedicated to helping you make sense of God and sexuality. But you know, part of my heart in just engaging in this ministry and this podcast is to provide places where we can hear people's honest stories of pain and trauma and just overall wrestling with sexuality. Personal stories encourage us and give us hope in our own circumstances. So have you ever felt like you had a secret you couldn't tell anyone? Or maybe you found it too difficult to be honest about your sin struggles because you've been afraid that somebody will reject you or judge you. Have you ever used sex to medicate issues of pain and trauma in your life that really need God's healing? Well, that's where we're headed in our conversation today. My guest is Tim Ross. Tim is a former pastor and an author, and perhaps most famously now known for his work as a podcaster on his podcast called The Basement. On The Basement, Tim paves the way for people to be honest, vulnerable, and have real conversations about the things that hurt us, drive us, and challenge us, so that people can seek and know the Lord Jesus Christ. In my conversation today, Tim shares about his own life, why vulnerability is so important to him, and how the Bible is our roadmap for keeping things real. And you'll hear in this conversation, Tim doesn't just talk about this. He shares very vulnerably some of his own journey. I really think you're going to find it an encouragement and a hope for you as you move forward. So let's head to the coffee shop for my conversation with Tim Ross. Well, Tim, thanks so much for being willing to be on Job with Julie with me. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you, Julie. I'm honored to be invited. And so I'm grateful to share this space with you today. Yeah. So you are the host of the Basement Podcast. And I'd love for you to tell the background of that word basement because it's pretty profound. Yeah. So I had an open vision when I was 30 years old. I was serving as a young adult pastor uh, at a church in Dallas. And I had this open vision, right? Which means I was awake. Mm-hmm. And in the vision, I was walking down the street and I was walking towards a high rise building. Like it was a hundred stories high. From the outside, I could actually hear music and laughter and chatter billowing from the 100th floor, as as crazy as that sounds. Mm-hmm. And so I walk into the building. It's a very sterile building. There's no art, no decor, all white walls. And I step into the elevator and there is a button for L, which is lobby, which I entered from. And above the L there was 100. There wasn't one through 99. It was just 100. So I pressed 100 and I go up 100 stories. And as you can imagine, my ears are popping. And uh, as we ascend, the higher I get, Julie, the more insecure I become. I start becoming very self-conscious. I start checking my clothes and I start checking my shirt and my pants. Do I have any stains on me? I'm and and I'm wondering if I'm presentable. And so we get up to the top floor and the doors open and there's a long hallway that leads down three steps into, in, into the most kind of open, spacious, New York City high rise opulence, right? Very nice. And there's a balcony off that and there's all these people mingling. And so I, I take one step off the elevator and 
to my left and right. I could not see this while on the elevator, but as soon as I took a step off, my peripheral was populated and I looked both ways and there's this long line of women, beautiful Mm -hmm. women, and they're all in bikinis and they're all holding these silver chargers Hmm. with every sin, weight, and vice you can possibly imagine. And to my right, there were all these ripped men, like super muscular. They all have on Speedos, 2% body fat, you know, and they're all holding silver chargers as well with every sin, vice, and weight that you could possibly imagine. I'm kind of quickly assessing this and I'm like, this must be the test to make it down this long hallway. I guess I, I have to pass this test, right? And not pick up anything from these chargers. What I do have to say that I didn't mention is that on the way up, what I became aware of is that everybody on this top floor was an influential person in the body of Christ, Mm. nameless and faceless. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I could point to somebody and go, there's Billy Graham or, you know, there's Charles Stanley and there's T.D. Jakes and there's, you know, Stephen Furtick. It it was, there was just this intrinsic awareness, although the faces weren't recognizable. And so I'm like, well, if I'm going to be down there with those type of people, I got to, I guess this is the test to pass. And so I get down to the end of the hall. I look down at my feet. I get down to the end of the hall and I go down the three steps and there's all these people mingling and talking, but no one looks up at me. No one says hi. No one, you know, sometimes if you're at a restaurant and a door opens, you at least look up and, you know, make eye contact with somebody that never happened. And so I'm sitting there for a few moments and then about eight feet away from me, these two gentlemen are talking to each other. I wasn't trying to listen to their conversation, but as I kind of scanned them and looked down at their hands, they're both holding something from the chargers. Mm. And then I realized everyone on this floor is holding something from the chargers. Yeah. And so I'm there, I'm there a few more minutes and I'm like, I guess I'm not supposed to be here. (laughs) So I go back up the steps and I put my head down again and walk to the elevator. I get in the elevator. I'm about to press L to go back down to the lobby. And I see a button go, go, I see a button going down that I did not see going up. And it's a very faint B and it's Mm -hmm. right underneath the L. So I pressed L. I mean, I pressed B. Mm -hmm. And when I pressed B, I went down 101 stories, ears popping, going all the way back down, descending. And as the elevator is resting on this bottom floor, before the doors even open, I hear music and laughter and just this warm feeling that I didn't feel on the top floor. On the top floor, I I do need to mention that the only people up there were like the influential personalities. Mm -hmm. There were no husbands, wives, children. It was just these figures. And so when the doors opened, all of these people, there were men and women and kids and husbands and wives and friends and family. And they all turn, they all swing towards the elevator. Their attention all turns toward the elevator and they just went, yeah. And they just start cheering to the top of their lungs, right? And they yank me off of the elevator and they're shaking me and they're patting me on the back and they're hugging me. And then this one guy walks up and he grabs me by my shoulders and he kind of gently shakes me and he goes, I am so glad you made it down here. We're so glad you made it down here. He said, not many people that go up there mm. make it back down here. Mm. 
Wow. And seen. That was the end of the vision. Gee, my goodness. So I, I'm like, <laughs> Holy Spirit, what was that? <laughs> right? yeah. You know, and what I felt like the Holy Spirit told me was, he said, Tim, everybody believes the mission is to go up. He said, but it's really about coming down. Mm-hmm. And then he asked me this question. He said, if Jesus is the chief cornerstone, what floor would you want to live on? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I said, I'd want to be right next to him. Yeah. And he goes, good. Get as many people to the basement as you can. Mm-hmm. And that's what he told me when I was 30 years old, seven, 18 years ago now. Gee. So I just have to yeah. ask, is that normal for you to have open visions like this? Or was it sort of a one-off? The one and only I've ever had in my life. Wow. And can I ask you, like, yeah. when did it happen? Were you were you in a posture of prayer? Was it like, what was the setting that kind of set you up for that? Yeah. So I, it wasn't my devotion time. Um, I, I might have been watching TV. Wow. I might have just been yeah. on my couch watching TV and I'm just hit with this vision. Yeah. And it was so compelling and left such an indelible mark that I, every person that I spoke to privately from then on that I discipled and mentored always started with this open vision. Right. And I always told them about, hey, listen, we're going to live our lives in the basement. Mm-hmm. We're going to go down and not up. We're, we're going to be out and not in, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. The kingdom is upside down. So I just started explaining to them like the compromise that happens when we set our focus and our sights on trying to go up. Yeah. And we started having these very raw, vulnerable conversations. And I started to challenge them in ways that they had not been challenged about how they live their life for God and what integrity looks like and what character looks like and what living above reproach means and how you live that out. And so it became something that I was known for amongst those that I discipled. And all of us knew what the basement meant. We all knew what press B meant. We all knew the commitment we've made to this philosophy. I just had no idea there would be a season coming where I'd be sitting down on my couch in front of a hot mic and a live camera inviting, you know, thousands of people to the basement. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And I'm sure you've thought about the significance of you being 30, like same age Jesus was when, when he started his public ministry. But let me ask you at that point, yeah. your 30 year pastor, was that a struggle for you? Like to be pursuing Christian ministry, to get to the top floor instead of the basement? No, it, it was actually confirmation more than mm-hmm. anything. I'm not an ambitious person. The way that I execute all of my all of my things, whether it's my bills or ministry pursuits, is through a sense of responsibility. If I'm responsible for it, I'm going to follow through. And so I just felt like that vision was confirmation to what was already my approach and how I was navigating ministry. It was Mm -hmm. always, God, if you want me to do it, I will. But if you don't want me to do it, I'm not volunteering. Yeah, yeah. Or chasing after (laughs) it. Yeah, or chasing after it. I do feel like one of the most dangerous forms of ambition is what I call godly ambition. Yeah. And godly ambition is when we choose to do something for God that he didn't say he wanted to do through us. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. 
Boy, and I've just seen a lot of people get caught up in godly ambition. I want to do this for God. And, and it's like, that's noble. But if he didn't ask you to do it, why would you do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I've always tried to, as much as I can, pursue God ideas over good ideas. Mm-hmm. Boy, I love that. And now you have tens of thousands of people that are watching you and learning from you all the time through yeah. YouTube, social media. So is there at all a temptation then to become, you know, air quotes, like an influencer and kind of join that Christian celebrity rush? No. So yeah. here's the thing that's been so interesting. So all the people that I've discipled from 30 moving forward, they've seen this outward ascent of success or influence and they all call me and they just chuckle and say, you were saying this to us like 15 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. They're like, we've been in the basement for 17 years. And I was like, I know, right? And they're mm-hmm. like, you're not saying anything new. I'm like, I know. Yeah. It's just new people hearing it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I imagine within, you know, three years, everybody's going to be finishing my sentences and saying, we know, Tim, you said this already. Because all I do is repeat myself. I've been saying the same thing since I was 30, and I'll just keep saying it. Hey, you know, like, (laughs) Jesus only gave us three years of his life on earth, and we've been repeating his stuff over and over again, too. So That's correct. (laughs) Some things on repeat are good, and that message of humility, that message of going lower with the Lord, abiding, like, that's not anything we we need to stop hearing. Like, we need that one on repeat. So I agree. We absolutely do. Mm-hmm. And part of being in the basement is the humility to allow God and ask God to use your story to impact other people. And Tim, one thing that I've been super impressed by as I've gone through some of your teachings is how vulnerable you are in sharing some of your own story, aspects of your story that I think other people would sort of shy away from sharing, particularly around some of your sexual struggles, your sexual trauma growing up. Um, Yeah. When did you get to the point where you're like, hey, I need to start sharing that? Yeah. So uh, I'll give you the context of my life in that regard and lead you up to what precipitated Mm -hmm. that. So I was sexually abused by a teenage boy that lived across the street from me for about a six to eight month period of time. Mm. I found out later in my childhood that he actually abused every boy on our block. Oh, So my younger brother, our next door neighbors, he basically got to everybody and none of us, we didn't know it of each other till later, four or five years later. So obviously when you, when, when you're sexually traumatized at that age and you're sexually awakened at that age, your brain's not ready for that. Your body's not ready for that. Your emotions are not ready for that. Your mental state is not ready for that. You're mm-hmm. not physiologically ready for that. None of you is ready. Mm-hmm. So it wound up leading to the next four years, just kind of being almost blacked out. I don't remember fifth grade very well. My grades started to suffer. I was a chronic bedwetter because mm. obviously with trauma, it's stored in your body and whatever doesn't come up and out of your mouth through words will come up and out of your body through yeah. actions. And so at 12 years old, I was exposed to pornography and Julie, pornography became my alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, gambling. (laughs) It was Mm -hmm. my all-inclusive numbing agent. Mm -hmm. And between 12 and 19, it just became a stronghold. 
and a strong addiction. I lost my virginity around, I think I was 18 or 19. So amongst my friends, I was a late bloomer in that regard. Mm. But even my sexual experiences, it was it was all about numbing the pain. Well, one night when I'm 18 years old, I am watching pornography around 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and my mom actually catches me watching porn. Mm-hmm. And this is 1996. So this is not cell phone porn yeah. <laughs> or computer porn where you can quickly go to another screen. This is a box set TV with a VHS and a VCR, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I say caught, I mean caught. Mm-hmm. And so my mom being the godly woman that she is, she encounters me in this moment and she immediately goes to her room and hits her knees and starts praying. Wow. Did she and say anything to you in the moment? She just or said, she Tim, left? what are you doing? And obviously, I'm caught off guard. I don't know what to do first in that moment. And um, she didn't wait for an answer. She just turned around, went to her room, hit her knees, started praying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm feeling all this shame and guilt. And I remember taking the tape out and popping the tape in the VHS and then cleaning myself up and... I remember thinking to myself as I walked down the hall, if I make a left and go to my room, it's probably going to be awkward for the next four or five days. Mommy's probably going to tell daddy. Daddy's going to have like a talk with me about purity and I shouldn't be watching this. Mm-hmm. If I make a right and go in her room, I have to tell her why mm-hmm. I'm watching porn. Because, Julie, even at that age, I knew exactly why I was watching porn. Mm-hmm. I knew I was medicating trauma. I, I couldn't tell you those words. Yeah. But... I just wanted to numb myself from what I was feeling. It was not like I love porn and I love masturbating and I love doing this, even though it's eating up my life and keeping me up for hours on end and affecting my sleep and affecting my awake hours and not feeling in control of myself or my body. Um, Although I wasn't a believer in Jesus yet, I know um, it was his grace that led me to her room. And so that night, the eight-year-old in the 19-year-old's body Hmm. finally told mommy what what happened. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it's 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning at this point. We wake up my younger brother, who also shares for the first time that he was abused uh, by the same uh, teenage boy. And then my dad, who historically worked nights for the U.S. Postal Service, was called home on emergency at this point, right? So Mm. now it's probably 3.45 in the morning and the four of us are sitting up. And then my mom shares that when she was six years old, she was sexually harassed by her babysitters. Mm -hmm. Then my dad shares that when he was five, he was molested by the owner of a comic book store. So in one night, what should have been filled with like all this guilt and shame, it was like all these bright lights came on and we were finally seen and heard mm. and known mm. and still loved. Mm. None of us were shamed. Yeah. None of us were even blamed. Like there was containment for us. There was compassion for us. There was support for us. And so I just remember going to sleep that night and waking up and feeling like a 2000 pound slab of concrete was lifted from my chest. Mm-hmm. And I just remember feeling like, is this what it feels to breathe again? Is this what it feels like to be seen and known? And I just remember thinking in my mind, 
I am never going to have a secret again. <laughs> like, wow. yeah. I'm, I'm going to, someone's going to always know my business. I'm never holding, because I was in silence for 11 years. Like, wow. like it was like this emotional duct tape was wrapped around my mouth 15 times. And so I could, I could actually take a full breath of air and I thought to myself, I'm never going back. Mm-hmm. And six months later, I gave my life to Jesus, January 14th of 1996. I preached my first sermon a month after that and uh, have been preaching ever since. But I just remember I started reading the Bible January 15th of 1996, right? I gave my life to Jesus on the 14th, which was a Sunday. And on Monday, I'm like, I guess I better start reading my Bible. So I got one of my dad's uh, Thompson Chain Reference King James Version study Bibles and started reading it from Genesis 1. And even through the archaic language of old school King James, as poetic as it is, I started to see how vulnerable the Bible was. Mm, yeah. I started to realize how unconcerned the chroniclers were with the retelling of the history of their kings. They laid it all on the table, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so by the time you get to Re- the book of Revelation, chapter number 12, and it says, um, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony, I'm a literalist. And so I kind of thought to myself, well, the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony, I don't think it's going to do any good if it's unedited. So if I ever have to share my story, I'm going to have to share the whole thing and Mm -hmm. people are going to have to get over it. And if they have a problem with my story, then I don't know how they got through the Bible. They probably played hopscotch with it and only went to like the safe places, but they clearly haven't (laughs) read through the incest and through the deception and the adultery and the murders and the so between the bible and another book confessions by saint augustine Mm -hmm. between those two books within the first probably 18 months that i gave my life to jesus i realized that vulnerability is biblical and if i was brave enough it would be my superpower yeah it has become that Hey friend, just jumping in for a minute here, I want to give you another quick reminder that Reclaim 2.0 is coming in just a month. It's our virtual marriage conference taking place from February 14th through the 17th. And if you haven't already registered, let me encourage you to do so. We all need a deeper understanding of God's design for sex, even if you're single. During this three-day conference, those who attend will have the opportunity to hear from me, Dr. Michael Seitzma, and Dr. Jennifer Degler. You'll be able to join live Q&As, listen to keynote sessions, and hear testimonies from couples who are walking through many of the same challenges that you might be facing. To find out more about Reclaim and to register for a ticket, click the link in the show notes. Now let's head back to my conversation with Tim Ross. But I'm just thinking, like, you're 18, 19 years old, the first thing you do as a Christian is to read through the Bible cover to cover in the King James and to yeah. read <laughs> and to read Confessions by St. Augustine. Like that's not normal. I wish it were normal. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, I know a lot of your outreach is to young men and women who are new believers. And a lot of them, a lot of us, even as older, like as you say, we play hopscotch, we get a devotional that doesn't get into the deep stuff. Yeah. And it's just like, and then we're still left with questions like, 
why would God let this happen? And right. we have a, we have a yeah. wrong understanding of God because we haven't read the whole picture of who he is. So I, I, I would just ask you, like, what encouragement do you have for the person who feels really intimidated to read the Bible of Genesis to Revelation? Yeah, I would tell them to take the journey. You know, my encouragement and my exhortation to people when it comes to reading the Bible is you don't have to understand everything on your first pass. Mm-hmm. I remember we went to Israel for the first time in 2015. We were there for a few days and we got to see a lot of historical sites and visit historical cities and places and spaces. And it wasn't enough time. Mm-hmm. And so, but, but I don't regret the trip that we took. All, all I remember thinking to myself is I have to come back. Yeah. And I have to stay longer. Yep. And, and so my encouragement when people read the Bible is just read it. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to understand everything you're reading right now. You don't have to know the theological to- context right now. Just get acclimated to reading the book. I do believe that for most people, the Bible is an acquired taste, mm-hmm. right? It is. There was no time prior to giving my life to Jesus that I thought to myself, I can't wait to get up early in the morning and read my Bible. Right. Ah! <laughs> right? It, it's an acquired taste. And But the more you do it, the more you fall in love with it because you realize it's the only book that's breathing. It's the only Mm. book that's alive. It's the only book that the more you read it, it reads you. The more you open it, it opens you. And so I fell in love quite literally with just reading it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And sometimes my understanding came later. I can't tell you how many times I've read through the Bible and then had a situation happen in my life and the Holy Spirit is able to bring something back to my memory. I'm like, is that what you meant by that? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I never understood why Jesus cursed a fig tree for probably 15 years of my salvation. (laughs) And then like after year 15 and a half, I'm like, oh my goodness, is that what you meant by that? (laughs) (laughs) I finally understood. I had read commentaries. I had heard sermons on it. And then sometimes life experience is what draws out the meaning. But if you don't have that foundation laid, you don't know where to put it. There's no connecting elements for you to have. So, yeah, reading the Bible is is one of the best things you could ever do for your soul. Mm. And now you made us all really curious about why did Jesus curse the fig tree? (laughs) (laughs) So the leaves indicated that there would be fruit. Mm hmm. And so when the leaves are there and there is no fruit, it's an indictment on those of us that would look like we have something that we actually don't. Okay. Yeah. And again, it's a call back to humility. It's a call back to authenticity. It's a call back to living hot, my acronym for honesty, openness, and transparency. Yeah. It's a call back to the basement. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So Tim, we're following your story. You're 19, 20 years old on fire for the Lord, reading the scripture, but I'm so glad that you've shared that you continue to struggle with pornography for a good 10 years. And that's so important. And I'd love to talk about that because a lot of people feel like once you come to Christ and you're in his word and you've talked about the trauma you experienced, like you're healed, you shouldn't struggle anymore. Yeah, that's not the case. And Mm -hmm. I found that out the hard way. You you know, I I was born and raised in a highly Pentecostal emotional environment. And there's elements about the Pentecostal 
experience and expression that I dearly love because I'm a very emotive person. But there were other elements of it that just didn't pan out to be effective. Like, you know, given an altar call for lust, it's not going to help you get over trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, doing an altar call for purity is not going to deal with a habitual sin that has been ingrained since you were 12 years old. Yeah. Right. And so praying about it is good. It is good. And I've seen people come down to an altar call and get completely freed from pornography and never have another temptation with it, completely freed from nicotine and cigarettes and drugs, angel dust, PCP. Like like, I've Mm -hmm. seen all of that happen. Mm -hmm. And the majority of us don't have that experience. (laughs) I'm like super happy for the people that have had the experience. And I'm like, can you tell me what church it was and what altar call it was and what sermon it was? And could you put it in a bottle for me, you know, mail it to my house. But for the rest of us, uh, it takes some work. And Mm -hmm. so for me to break a pattern of sexual sin in both pornography and promiscuity, I had to talk it out. I had to figure out where it was in my body. I had to expose the lies that I started believing as to why this was okay for me. And it just took time to wrestle that down. Mm -hmm. And I would not trade the experience I had in chipping it down and finally walking in freedom for anything in the world because nothing destroyed my pride and my ego faster (laughs) than wrestling and crucifying my flesh when it came to pornography. Mm-hmm. It helped me become a, a more gracious person, not only to others, but to myself. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how much legalism and self-righteousness I had when I be, when I gave my life to Jesus. And that porn addiction was mocking me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. it helped me shut my mouth very quickly in judging other people and judging myself. Yeah, I had to show myself the same loving kindness that God was showing me. Because kicking my own butt or punishing myself in a way that God wasn't even trying to do was all self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. So in some and, ways, it wouldn't have been good for you if God had just magically taken away that struggle. Like that was part of your spiritual formation. It absolutely was. Mm-hmm. You mentioned getting to the root of some of the lies that you believe that reinforce that. What are some of those lies? Yeah, so the first lie and really the epicenter of it all was that vulnerability is dangerous. Mm. The, the I remember the first time I was abused by my neighbor. I disassociated in that moment. I was able to put my mind on what I was going to do next, right? Mm-hmm. I checked out of my body. Yeah. But I remember once I got back in my body, I remember thinking through the lie that I had to tell my mom because if I told the truth in my mind, my dad was going to kill the guy. My older brother was going to bury the body. Mm. They were going to go to prison. My mom was going to be brokenhearted and we were going to be in the foster care system. Mm. Wow. All of that was thought through at eight years old. Jeez. So I actually protected my abuser. Not because he said anything like, you better not tell your parents or I'll kill you. Or if you try to tell anybody, I'll hurt you or hurt those that you love. I actually lied 
so that he wouldn't be hurt and then I wouldn't be without my mm -hmm. support system. So I had this narrative that obviously as an eight-year-old boy, I, there was no way to flesh that out into the sentence that I could give you now, but that's what was exposed. When I went through my EMDR, what I realized was the epicenter of what was driving all the other lies in my trauma was that vulnerability is dangerous. Mm. And if vulnerability is dangerous and I can't share that I, I was abused, then I also can't share that I have a porn addiction. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. then that's dangerous. So at, at like... 18, you said, I never want to keep a secret again because you experienced yeah. the joy of vulnerability, but then you went back to feeling like you had to keep a secret. What happened between 19 and really 22 mm -hmm. is that I don't want to hold a secret anymore. I just don't know who to give them to. Okay. So like I was giving them to my parents mm -hmm. and they were kind enough to just always love me and encourage me, but I was, it was just a cycle. Mm -hmm. So I was being honest about where I was, but I wasn't making any traction. Like I wasn't, yeah. nothing was changing. And so two years after I gave my life to Jesus was the first time I set up a, a session with a counselor. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that hasn't stopped from that day to this. So in the 27 years that I've been in, been a believer in Jesus. It'll be 28 next year. Um, in the 27 years I've been a believer in Jesus, I've had therapy for 25 of those years. Wow. Wow. And can I ask how many different therapists? So Dr. Gibson, Dr. Bobby Gibson was first. Dr. Nicole McCann was second. And then I had, um, I have Nancy Houston, my EMDR therapist, she wants to remain nameless, so I'm sure. keeping her yeah. nameless. Uh -huh. And then I have one more. So I've had a total of five, yeah. and I still see two of those five. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, Tim, there's a lot of conversation about kind of the integration of psychology with your walk with God. And I know people who would say, like, it's just the Bible, it's just prayer, like, that's what you need to heal. You know, psychology is sort of a false God. Uh, and then there's other people who would say the opposite, where yep. even as Christians, like, nope, therapy's it. Like, you got to process things. You got to do things like EMDR. And they kind of eliminate the spiritual pieces of healing. How have you yeah. found to integrate those two and not have them feel like they're competing? Yeah, so for me, I don't see therapy and psychology any different any differently than I see my dentist mm -hmm. or I see my general practitioner mm -hmm. so or I see my mechanic or I see my hairstylist <laughs> mm -hmm. you know I realize that there are certain things about myself that I cannot do on my own yeah so if I have a cavity I should not be the one trying to fill it I can't get in my mouth like that mm -hmm. when it comes to getting my physicals every year and getting my heart scanned and my brain scanned and my kidney scanned and my stomach scanned. I don't have those instruments in my house. I shouldn't be doing that myself. Yeah, I could teach myself to change my oil or my tires. I'm a creature of convenience. And so I'd rather pay somebody else to do it. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, when it comes to my mind, I shouldn't be making my own assessments of where I am. 
or how I feel, nor should I just be leaving that to someone that I prayed with at the altar or my pastor based on the sermon that he gave. I want to sit down with somebody whose mind has gone through the intellectual rigor of learning about psychology and how the human brain works and how it's tied to your body and tied to your mind and how trauma is stored and how it behaves and how it occurs and reoccurs, how grief works and the importance of grieving well and what happens when we don't. I would rather have somebody that kind of went to school and studied that in the same way I want somebody to have gone to school before they do a surgery on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want a dentist rumbling around in my mouth who hasn't gone to dentist school. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. don't. You yeah. know, I don't want a mechanic working on my car that doesn't have some type of certification. Yeah. And in the same way, I don't want people tinkering with my mind and my emotions that only have the Bible. If you want to give me some spiritual counsel, oh, I will absolutely receive it. But that's different than somebody that has gone to school and understand how the brain works and how it impacts the body. And when you have the opportunity to get with somebody that has both of those things, it's a win-win. Yeah. Yeah. And I I would say that that's the difference between counseling and the dentist. I'm a clinical psychologist, so this is my background. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But... As a dentist, your worldview doesn't really affect your practice. But when you're in the counseling world, the way you see God, the way you see what does it mean to flourish as a human being, like that is going to greatly impact the therapeutic process and what kind of counseling you give people. So with that caveat that I don't even just think when those two collide, it's a win-win. I think that's like a necessity. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. And it has been my prerequisite. Mm-hmm. I cannot go to someone in therapeutic world that doesn't have a biblical worldview. Yeah. Yeah. That would I, not work for me at all. No. And it's dangerous. Honestly, it's dangerous because you're really trusting yeah. this person to go to places and to direct you. You know, I think good biblical counseling is actually really more spiritual direction, Yeah, you know, and, and that integration. So, but... Thank you for sharing your history of that. And Tim, Absolutely. as you share your history, you know, there are a lot of people listening who are going to identify with this, but you think about that 18 months or how long did you say that you were assaulted? Was it eight months? Six to eight uh, about, months? Yeah, six to eight months. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you think about that short, relatively short period of time in your life, in a child's life, and how dramatically it changes the trajectory of everything. Everything. Yeah. I mean, Dan Allender says that in his experience, sexual abuse, particularly with children, has the greatest return on evil of anything else. Mm. Mm. And I'd love for you just to speak to Mm. others who have had that experience and are now, like you continue to do, are walking out kind of the waves of woundedness that comes from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very strong and sobering statement that um, you just shared. And it is true. I feel like it takes so much bravery for victims of sexual abuse to revisit those traumatic wounds and those traumatic episodes so that they can neutralize them and have them no longer impact them in a way that's negative. There is a way to integrate the negative realities of our lives and stories in a way uh, that can give glory to God and actually leave a positive impact on ourselves 
so that we can live very, very fruitful lives without being paralyzed by the traumatic episodes that we endured. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And kind of to bring it full circle, how has your experience in the basement been part of your healing journey? Yeah. So uh, what the basement has been for me is a place where I'm able to give people the gift of my vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And in turn, they are generous enough to give me the gift of their vulnerability. I call it the power of going second. Yeah. I believe that by sharing my story first, I give people the power to go second. And it has been so rewarding for me to see how many countless thousands of people at this point have chosen vulnerability, have chosen to step into counseling, have chosen to live without secrets, have made the decisions that were harder to do, but that were going to yield the greatest rewards. It's been mm -hmm. very, very humbling to be able to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. And if you were to say, here are one or two things that I could do as an individual to live in that basement, what are those things? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that you give yourself permission to be seen. Mm -hmm. And being seen, I mean the truest, rawest version of you. That's what needs to be seen and heard and known. The riskiest thing we could ever do is be vulnerable to the point where we could be rejected. But the best reward is when you choose that road and you are accepted. It is one of the most wonderful feelings in the whole wide world hmm. to be able to share something that you would feel would make somebody run in the opposite direction. But for some reason, through God's grace, they run towards you and not from you. That's a feeling that I'll never forget that happened that night. I, I uh, got caught by my mom and it's a feeling that I love giving to others to this very day. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So you said there's two things. That's the first one. Is to be yeah, the seen. first one. Yeah, the first one is to be seen. And the second one is to forgive yourself. This is something that I have had some people get so angry with me when I tell them this. You can't forgive yourself. Only God can forgive you. And then I'm like, okay, I'm a literalist. So let's go with your retort. If God doesn't forgive you, it doesn't matter how much you forgive yourself. And if God does forgive you and you don't forgive yourself, you're still not going to feel whole. Mm. And there's mm -hmm. so many people that live with regrets that God has forgiven. Mm -hmm. They live with pain and disappointment with themselves that God has already forgiven. And I, I just remember so much of what my trauma manifested and how it impacted myself, my marriage, certain seasons of ministry for me. I got fired from jobs behind my porn addiction. I could live in this barrel of regret or I can agree with God that I've been forgiven. Mm. And if he's forgiven me, I need to forgive myself and I need to move on. That if he's thrown it in the sea of forgetfulness, I should not be scuba diving in the sea of forgetfulness trying to go get what he's thrown away. And so I really do believe that forgiveness of others and forgiveness for ourselves is 
a key ingredient to walking in the freedom that God has for us. What do you think it would look like for you to give the gift of vulnerability to a friend or a loved one? I really like what Tim said, that we can give people the power of going second. Giving that power to someone requires us first, though, to be vulnerable, humble ourselves, and even risk rejection. But when we do that, doors can be open that can really invite other people into healing. Now, while this approach kind of seems scary and maybe even revolutionary, the reality is that for followers of Jesus Christ, this should actually be the norm. It should be normal for us to have honest conversations and humbly share our challenges and confess our stories and our sin. You know, James calls us to confess our sins one to another so we can be healed. Confessing, admitting, sharing in one another's burdens, all of these principles are found in Scripture. I wonder how much more healing and hope we would all experience if we could just better cultivate this within our own church communities. If you'd like to hear more about Tim, learn about his podcast, we've linked to his website and his podcast in the show notes. I've really been encouraged by him, and I'm sure that you will as well. Well, that's it for today, but let me tell you that next week is our 500th episode of Job with Julie. Yeah, you heard that right. That's a lot of episodes, 500. So I'd encourage you to listen uh, with us on Monday as we'll be doing some giveaways to celebrate, and I'd hate for you to miss it. I'll see you then.